Have you ever wanted to see for yourself what the Bible has to say? Well, you've come to the right place. Join me, Pastor Tom Marsis, and Vicar Aidan Moon as we explore the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, provide you with some landmarks and guideposts along the way. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures. This week we are on episode 31, Stories of Exile. And this week we will be covering Nehemiah chapter 10 through 13, the book of Esther, and Daniel chapter 1 through 9. I'm Vicar Aiden Moon. And I'm Vicar Jason Kahn. As we go through our text today, we will especially focus on the books of Esther and Daniel as we uh, discussed Nehemiah quite a bit last time. Um, but we're, we're finishing up the book of Nehemiah this week, so continue to pay attention and reflect on the, the context of that, the, the life of the return from exile, those who are coming back into Jerusalem and resettling and what that looks like. Uh, but now we're going a little bit of a journey. We're returning a little bit further back. We're going back in time a little bit. Um, and we're going to go off to far distant lands and hear some other stories from the Old Testament. This is interesting because these are some of the unique stories that are not in the Holy Land as we usually think of it. They are uh, off in distant cities. So first, the book of Esther. We're going back in time. Like I said, this is chronologically in between Zerubbabel's return to Jerusalem, which we talked about in Ezra, and then Ezra's reform. So time-wise, it's in the middle of the book of Ezra. And another kind of theme of this that's kind of interesting is that there's six different feasts in the text of Esther. So you can sort of frame the story and organize it around these six different feasts. So King Xerxes holds two feasts, one where his... he kicks his queen out, and another one where he celebrates having a new queen, Esther. And then Esther holds some dinner parties, and then Mordecai holds some feasts at the end of the story, um, which is celebrated at Purim by the Jewish people every year. So there's these feasts throughout the story. That's kind of a thread we can trace through. But there's some interesting there's some interesting facts about characters. As we start to look at the main characters, because this is definitely a character-driven book, um, well, there's one interesting feature that we first might notice, and that's the omission of a kind of important character. Yeah, God himself is never mentioned. He's never named. But that doesn't mean he's not there. There are these hidden themes of providence in the background, uh, most notably at chapter 4, verse 14, um, when it's brought up, perhaps, Esther, you've been appointed to this for such a time as this. That's kind of a hint like, hey, there's something else going on here. There's a hidden power at work that's just keeping himself uh, hidden for whatever reason. And so just because God is not named doesn't mean he's not there and actively working. And so it's interesting reading the story with that in mind, that God will never be given any credit actually, but he's still very much at work continuing to bring his, to keep his promise to bring a Messiah from the line of David. So we kind of have to piece that together ourselves, just how God is working. That's kind of a fun little part of the Bible where, hey, God's not actually mentioned. That's not normal, yeah, usually. That's a little He's odd. usually all over the place. Yeah, yeah, so it's a bit of a departure from the norm. Yeah, well, and it, I think in some ways, it's kind of like the book of Ruth, because there's a few other places that are that way. The book of Ruth is the same way, where it's like, these are people who are just sort of living life. And so it's not always like super religious. A lot of times the religious life of the people is obviously a significant theme of the scriptures. Um, but sometimes it's also just about human people living life and God is more behind the scenes. And that's true of our lives too. A lot of the time, um, the our God is, is obviously at work and he is behind the scenes of all human history, 
but a lot of times that is hidden and we're left to sort of piece together the pieces ourselves. So the, the characters in the story that we have, primarily we have obviously Esther. Mm-hmm. So the, the young woman who the book is named after, uh, she becomes the queen of Persia. And then you have King Xerxes. Uh, then there's, he's also called uh, Ahasuerus or something along those lines. Kind of sounds like a dinosaur name yeah, to me. Yeah, it does give uh, that kind of vibe. Uh, well, I did, it was interesting because Xerxes is actually the Greek name. And when I was going down a little bit of a rabbit hole on that, briefly that I restrained myself from. Um, any of you who have listened to the podcast before know that's always a danger for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the the Judean name for Xerxes and the Greek name Xerxes, they're all like bad attempts at pronouncing his actual Persian name, which is like really hard to pronounce. So that's just kind of funny because even back then there were people trying to figure out how to pronounce names. Um, <laughs> but he was the king of Persia at the absolute peak of its power. So um, in broader world history, if you've taken uh, some history of that time of, of human history, you'll know of him as the, the Persian king who tried to invade Greece, or maybe you've seen 300. Um, that's probably a little bit of a uh, slanderous depiction of him as a character. Nonsense. Um, absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Not historical in any way. But it is, uh, that, that is uh, one way he's familiar to pop culture, at least. Um, so he's, he's, he's a big figure in human history. The Persian Empire was massive and he was powerful. So uh, this is just like a tiny little snippet of this uh, interaction between him and this little backwater people of the the Jews who Mm -hmm. don't really feature that heavily on the grand scheme of human history. Um, But we have Esther uh, as this being his queen. So what's interesting about this book is that Xerxes is not really portrayed in a very flattering way. He's, he kind of seems stupid, honestly, Uh, like just a little bit like self-indulgent, not super aware of what's going on around him. He's very trusting of the wrong people. Like, so he's not, not entirely portrayed flatteringly, but we also know from the broadscope that he, this is a very, very powerful man. Um, So that's, that's kind of important. Maybe his stupidity made it a little bit easier for God to do his thing in the background. (laughs) That's, that's also true. Yeah. Well, and, and this theme of, of Kings in scripture, sometimes just not getting it is not a new one. Right. We've seen it before and we'll see it again. We'll see it in Daniel too, which we'll talk about later. That's also, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is almost kind of a similar type of character. You're just like, he really doesn't get it, does he? No. Yeah. He's just, he's kind of clueless. And then we have, uh, we have two other main characters of the story. We have Mordecai, who is, we find a descendant of King Saul, which is interesting. Uh, He is a faithful Judean. So he is someone who uh, we see him, uh, he's the one who makes the one reference that we can kind of tie back to seeing some theme of providence. And then we have uh, Haman, Haman, however you want to say it, speak confidently, as we always say. Mm-hmm. And he is the villain of the story. So King Xerxes is not the villain of the story. He's he's sort of bumbling along doing his thing. But, but Haman is definitely the villain of the story. And there's an interesting connection. If we go back earlier in our trek through the scriptures, um, you'll remember that there was some some battles fought from, with the Israelites. And uh, you, this is sort of a deep cut. You have to know a little bit and remember some things that are kind of obscure, which I didn't. I got somebody told me this, so this isn't my own smartness. Uh, but he is called an Agagite, which means he's a descendant of the king Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, who was fought by Saul and killed by the prophet Samuel, if you remember that kind of gruesome story. Uh, So there's this spiritual war between God and the enemies of Israel, the Amalekites and and others. 
um, that continues even generations later. So there's this sort of spiritual battle going on uh, between God and these these enemies of his people. And it's interesting to know then that Mordecai is a descendant of Saul and him and Haman are kind of at odds um, doing that battle even then. So this this kind of back and forth uh, of the, the six dinner parties and this building tension and these iron, ironic twists through the story make Esther a pretty interesting read. Um, it's an enjoyable one. And it's really, it is, it's, it's a very powerful story of the interaction of Jewish exiles within a very ambiguous slash hostile even environment. And that's, I, I think these, these books and stories of the exile are remain very powerful um, because we find ourselves as Christians, and this is actually almost always true, even if we don't think so, in a ambiguous or hostile environment, truly to true Christian faith. And so it's encouraging to see that there's stories of this kind of ambiguity and the questions that must be asked, even, even despite that opposition and God being hidden and us not seeing how he's working, he continues to keep heading towards his ultimate promises, keep being with his people um, and leading them towards the ultimate fulfillment. And that's very, very hopeful, hopeful part of Esther. Right. This is a testament to God's faithfulness to his people. And I think I really like the perspective of him not being mentioned in this story. And it leaves it up to us to piece all this together because that's kind of how life is sometimes. I mean, sometimes we go to church and it's just clear like, oh, yes, this is what this is what God is communicating to me or this is how he's speaking to me right now. But sometimes in our lives, we don't really know what's going on and we don't really know what God is up to, how he's at work, if he's even at work in our lives. Um, but Esther is an example that, yeah, the God, this God rules over all things, all aspects of creation. And there's nothing he can't do. And even when it doesn't look like he's around, he's still very much there and at work and is faithful to his people. So Esther's a powerful testimony of just who our God is. So we'll move into our next story of exile. And it's interesting, and uh, we didn't make the reading plan, so you do your best with ordering books because doing them in order doesn't always uh, is not always easy. We're trying to generally follow chronologically, uh, but Daniel takes us a little bit back in time again, and this takes us back to before Persia, and then it'll lead into the, the change as uh, the Persian Empire comes into power. Um, but we're going back to Babylon again. We've talked about Babylon a lot. They've been back in the background. They're the big baddie of a lot of the Old Testament. Even, uh, even if though they sort of change forms, there's this sort of hint, hint theme throughout that these people of that area of the world are a pretty significant force of evil power. And so we're going back and we're going back to the, the first wave of exiles. So we talked about how Ezekiel fit into that category. Um, he, was one, he was in that first wave of exiles to Babylon from Jerusalem. Daniel is as well. The best and the brightest were carried away into exile and Daniel and his friends were a part of that. We see this sort of this playing out in this very, very important book. Daniel is very significant, so let's not undervalue it. And it's what's interesting is it's very significant and also 
has some super familiar stories, which is maybe uh, kind of nice after we've spent a lot of time reading difficult stuff. Um, well, there's some difficult stuff in Daniel too, but um, especially the first part is a lot of familiar stories. Um, from one of our resources, this, here's a quote, Daniel is a pivotal prophet who serves to encourage God's people as they transition from living under an established Old Testament theocracy to living in a world of pagan influence and foreign domination, which is kind of what I was getting at earlier with Esther as well. I mean, we we need... Uh, a picture of what it means not to live in a theocracy, because we don't, um, but what it means to live in a more pluralistic and uh, sometimes difficult context where you can't just assume that the values of God's people are going to rule the day. And so this is very, very helpful, and we should, I think, probably be more aware of our own role and of the fact that in the world, the people of God will always sort of be a parallel group to everyone else, uh, living among neighbors who are different than them. But there's always, uh, there's a, the, the uh, church father Augustine would talk in terms of the city of God and the city of man, that there's this theme of that, those two things sort of running alongside each other. One is more hidden. One is, uh, and, and, and so that's what we're getting at here too, as we talk about exiles is that these are people who, as the prophet Jeremiah said, are going to go and settle in and work for the good of the city. We see Daniel actually acting that out, which we talked about in, in Jeremiah. Like, go and live where you're going to live and actually work for its good, even though this is your big enemy. Um, and so Daniel actually actually does that. So that's a pretty helpful thing and theme for us as well. So Daniel's unique. Um, be, like I said, there's some familiar stories. So chapters one through six are, are narrative, but it's also clearly prophetic, especially in the last chapters, because we have some pretty crazy visions, uh, which we are off the hook this week because we don't quite get into them in great detail. Next week, uh, we'll have a little bit more reflection on those visions and what they're pointing to. Um, but yeah, it is uh, some goofy stuff in the last part that's hard for us to interpret sometimes, but I think can is is actually kind of interesting historically. But the reason that this is grouped generally as a prophetic book and not a historical book is because of that significant chunk at the end of the book of the visions. And uh, so another quirky thing about Daniel is that it is not just in Hebrew. So uh, it's, also in the, it's also in Aramaic. So technically, to translate the whole Old Testament, you also have to know Aramaic. Um, I don't. Me but, neither. Yeah, <laughs> you you can learn it. It's 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 related to Hebrew as a language, um, but it is a different language, and uh, so it is kind of interesting that uh, we have both here in Daniel. The first section and the last few are in Hebrew, but all of the narrative sections pretty much are in Aramaic, which is unique. Yeah, Daniel is a quirky little book, and I think we're all much more familiar with the narrative parts of Daniel than the prophetic parts. And I remember a number of years ago when I was in college, I was thinking about reading Revelation front to back just to see like how crazy it gets. And I remember a pastor told me, well, don't do that until you read the end of Daniel, because that'll really help you understand you know, some of the imagery in Daniel is you know, picked up again in Revelation. And so I looked at it briefly, and it made no sense to me at the time, and it probably still wouldn't now. But uh, there's there's a lot of weird stuff in Daniel that is picked up later on and is helpful for understanding, like, exactly what's going on in Revelation. But it's good to have a guide on that. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. What's interesting is that if, you're, if you've studied history, 
uh, you start to be able to make some associations pretty quickly with that last part of Daniel. And that's what's kind of funny is that actually some secular scholars will say that Daniel must be really, really late because it's so obviously talking about these empires that are going to be ruling later. And so like that's one of the things that that's one of the the proofs that it must be later is that he couldn't possibly have predicted it this specifically. Hmm, well, so it's kind of funny uh, that we can see that, which obviously we come from a little bit different perspective because we think God actually can show people things right. that are real. Um, <laughs> he talks to his people. What? So, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting that these are very clearly fulfilled prophecies um, as we see them reflecting on the uh, different empires that will come after Babylon, and so. That theme of empire and the contrast of empire and exile, I think, is pretty big in Daniel, and especially the theme of the pride and the pride of human power, and how uh, God God is pretty consistent at breaking down human pride um, in one way or another. Uh, we see in the New Testament this, and in some of the prophets, this kind of great reversal theme. Uh, we see it in in uh, Luke. When we see Mary, her song that she sings that we talk about, the Magnificat, you know, God is going to break down these great empires and lift up those who are humble and lowly. Uh, that's that's an Old Testament theme for sure, and Daniel even gets at it pretty significantly too. And this that's why I mean, these really big themes is God is confronting these super powerful empires and their idols, and those things are very closely connected. Uh, we sometimes undervalue the deep reality of that these people's worldview, the king was essentially a god for any, but for all intents, intents and purposes. I mean, the, we talked about that with Pharaoh a little bit, yeah. Uh, but the king was essentially seen as a god. So, and if you are a ruler and everybody sees you as a god, like that's, there's obviously an ego that comes with that. I mean, that's, we think we have issues of ego and stuff. Well, this is a whole nother level. Um, so God confronts that very forcefully in the book of Daniel, both with Nebuchadnezzar and with his son Belshazzar. And so this kind of idea, we also see this theme, um, we'll see this in our Bible project uh, videos as well, that human pride, that which is like this attempt to rebel, which we'll remember is really the original sin, uh, leads to becoming beastly a sort of degrading of the intent of the human person. And we see this very clearly in, and very literally in a sense with Nebuchadnezzar as he literally is out, you know, eating grass in a field and going crazy. As one who believes he is a god does. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes absolutely crazy and God uses that to humble him. Uh, his son ends up assassinated instead. So Nebuchadnezzar actually kind of has a little bit more have a happy ending because he does actually humble himself. He's a, he's a Babylonian king and he yeah, humbles himself out, before God. Worked out pretty good. That's kind of a cool thing. Um, so in, in one way or another, God's kingdom humbles all human kingdoms. That's a pretty big theme. And that is what ties together Daniel's narrative sections and the later, uh, the later section as well, um, the later sections of the visions is that like, even though human kingdoms look like they're just going to dominate forever, like Christ is going to kick butt. Like that's what we're going to see in Daniel. And that's also what Revelation picks oh, up yeah. too. I uh -huh. mean, that's like all of Revelation. That is all of Revelation. Christ <laughs> is going like, to kick butt. It looks real bad. I know. Yep. But, uh, but that's, that's not the end of the that's story. That's not the end of the story. There's more yeah, to come. There's more to come. And, and we've talked about before how God's power and God's sort of, 
uh, God as a warrior in a sense is pr- not like a super popular thing for us to talk about in modern context. We probably should more because it's actually really hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the wrong side of God, sure, that's a bad thing. I mean, we see that with Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar. But God's people, those who are trusting in him, those who have been um, victimized and destroyed and oppressed by their enemies, it's very good news that God is a just God who is going to work his vengeance. Right. Well, Paul even picks up on this at a couple points in his epistles, especially in Romans when he asks, if God is for us, mm-hmm. who's going to be against yep, yep. Who can stand up yep. to our God? Like, good luck. Seriously. Well, um, this, is a, this is a really important part of the gospel. Um, the gospel, as we've said before, is not just forgiveness of sins. It's also God's victory. Right. And uh, so... It's uh, we we do we get right with God. We are on God's side through the work of Christ, and that means that He is powerfully for us. And this isn't the end of the story. That's very good news. So that that idea of God's kingdom being humbled means that this is some of the most uh, amazing messianic imagery. There's going to be a Messiah called the Son of Man in Daniel. Which once we get to the Gospels. Jesus starts to call himself that. You're going to be seeing that a lot yeah, it, once we it, get to the New Testament. <laughs> right. It's, uh, well, it's often, people often don't realize this, that when, when Jesus is calling himself the son of man, he's not talking about his human nature in, the, in that way. It's a title that refers to a messianic figure. Um, so we often read it and we're like, well, yeah, he's a well, son duh, of man. Well, duh, he's a person. Yeah, yeah, he's a human. Like, But that's not exactly course. what he's referring to. He's referring back to some of these prophecies of the son of man who is this powerful figure who will humble the human kingdoms and nations. So Daniel has this sort of interesting structure. And well, we talk about this sometimes as as being called a chiasm. That's how it's referred to, where you have these units that sort of mirror each other in opposite directions would be the best way to describe it, I think. So these first six units are which are the first six chapters, each are a self-contained narrative. So read each chapter as if this is an individual story. Um, They are all similar themes, but look at the sort of each chapter as an individual story, not just reading it chronologically, but like as its own unit. And then the last four units are are visions. So we can see this in terms of you have chapter one, which is sort of an introduction. And then chapter two, we could say we label it A. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of four kingdoms. Well, we skip ahead. We have chapter seven, which is the second introduction, and we have Daniel's vision of four kingdoms. Uh, so that's like our second A. So those mirror each other. Then chapter three, B, we see Nebuchadnezzar sees God's servants rescued. From we, this is the classic fiery furnace imagery. And then we skip ahead to chapter six, our second B, this mirrors it. King Darius of Persia sees Daniel rescued from the lion's den. So the fiery furnace and the lion's den kind of mirror each other. And then you see these two stories in the middle, chapter four and five of Nebuchadnezzar being judged by God and then restored after repentance. Like we said, he goes crazy for a little while and then God rescues him. And then we see the the mirror of that is his son Belshazzar is judged by God and he does not repent and it does not turn out good for him. He he is killed, his, his kingdom is taken away, the Persians come in, take over Babylon, uh, Babylon is done for. So we see that transition happen as well. So it's sort of an interesting structure, um, helpful to remind ourselves that uh, these these books and stories of the Old Testament are crafted very carefully, which, well, someone who's who studies English, you probably kind of appreciate yeah, the whenever, literary stuff. Whenever I see like letter patterns like A, B, C, C, B, A, I just get a little bit excited because that means, ooh, the author is doing more than just telling a story. He's uh-huh. also structuring his story in a very intentional way. Uh-huh. 
And it can be tempting to kind of get lost in the weeds on that and make a bunch of meaning out of it. <laughs> but sometimes it might just be a poetic decision, like yeah. oh, kind of like sure. an artist. You know, why would they why would they do something as opposed to doing something else? Mm -hmm. Because they're making a work of art. And so certain parts of the Bible are very intentionally structured um, and it can be difficult to discern why. But it's mm -hmm. cool to note that, hey, this follows a certain pattern. Mm -hmm. We should take a look at that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I had not ever noticed that reading the book of Daniel until I did some further work to study that. That was yeah. Not something no one, no one would ever think of that on their own. I don't think, unless they, you know, refer to some of the sources that yeah, you took a look some at. Some kind of biblical scholar who sits down and just like engages themselves in it on a really deep level, and then starts to go, "Oh, hold on, right? <laughs> Wait a minute. This <laughs> is a kind. Things are repeating. Yeah." Uh, and if you start looking for chiasms, you can find them everywhere. Yep. And even just like sentences where it says, like, it just reverses the subject of the sentence in the next sentence. It's really common in Hebrew poetry. And yeah, it shows the Psalms. Up in, it's yeah, everywhere. It shows up in the New Testament too in uh -huh. various places. So this theme of chiasm of these sort of mirroring things is a poetic decision that's made all over the place. But it's really interesting to see it in uh, this very... Um, broad sense over seven chapters of a mm -hmm. book too. So, well, thank you for joining us. It's been good to chat a little bit about these stories of exile and how especially we as God's people live as pilgrims, as sojourners, as exiles, wherever we are. Um, we're always sort of foreign emissaries in a, in a foreign land. Uh, we're not home yet. Our citizenship is in heaven, which we are waiting. Uh, that's, that's what we hear from Paul. And that's what is so powerful about these Old Testament stories of exile is that it really is very deeply connected to our own story. And so we look forward to the time when our king will come and break all the other kingdoms. As we see in, in Psalm 2, he will break the nations with a rod of iron. That might sound kind of intimidating, but it's good news when God is for you. When you are one of his people, when you're God's children, it is good news that God indeed is coming. He's coming to work justice. He's coming to um, break down evil systems of power in the world. That is very good news for God's people. And so we look forward to that day and we continue to rejoice in that truth as we read through the scriptures, as we come closer and closer to the end of the Old Testament, as we inch a little bit closer to fulfillment, to the story of Jesus and the, the heart of the Christian story. So thank you for joining us again. It's great to be with you. I pray that God's blessings would go with you as you read, that you would continue to learn and grow in your trek through the scriptures this year. And we'll talk at you again next time. God's blessings. Thank you for joining us on our trek through the scriptures this week. This podcast is a ministry of Zion Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. To contact us, learn more, or for more resources on our journey this year, please visit zinebismarck.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. This podcast was made possible by a grant from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We thank them for their support. Join me now in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, giver and perfecter of our faith, we thank and praise you for the gift of your holy scriptures for our instruction and edification. Send your blessing upon your word and by the Holy Spirit increase our saving knowledge of you that day by day we may be strengthened in divine truth and remain steadfast in your grace. Give us strength to fight the good fight and by faith to overcome all the temptations of Satan, the flesh, and the world so that we may finally receive the salvation of our souls. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. Join us again next week as we continue our exploration of God's story as it points us ever towards the good news of Jesus Christ. Have a great week.